My objective today is this. I want to show you that in a world that offers you false hope, false security, and empty fulfillment, in the world that says, I'm going to set you up for something that's going to satisfy you, look forward to this. This is going to satisfy you. It's going to bring you fulfillment. I want to show you that there is a way to be truly, and not just truly, but continuously satisfied. Because we have to ask ourselves this question, do we really want to be satisfied? But let's be honest. Do we want to be satisfied? Are we tired of being thirsty? Are we tired of going back to the same well, drinking the same water that doesn't satisfy us? We go to all these different wells, which I'll explain more of when we get to the application portion. But aren't we tired of that? Aren't we tired of looking for this for fulfillment and this for fulfillment? When there's something that's there for us, that's affordable for us, free to us, costly to him, and it's right there. And he says, look, you come to me and I'll give you something that's satisfying. And that's the objective for today. So that's where we are in the story or in the gospel of John is with this encounter that Jesus has with this woman at the well. This is a familiar story. This is probably one that everyone in this room has heard, not just once or twice, but many times throughout your life. If you haven't heard it, this is the first time. It's a fascinating story. And like a lot of things we've seen already in the book of John, there's so much more to this than meets the eye. There's a lot of things that maybe you gloss over, just like the wedding at Cana, just like uh, John's uh, prologue when he's making all these statements about the deity of Christ. And now we come to this place where John is going to begin to show us more things through Jesus and his encounter with this woman who's at the well. So let's begin in verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself was not doing any baptizing himself, but only his disciples. He then did what? He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. We know that a lot of Jesus' ministry happened in Galilee. But the scripture's kind of interesting right here, and it's easy to gloss over, but let's just take a moment to see what's happening. How is John setting up the story? He's setting it up by showing us that, okay, Jesus has caused quite a stir. Some would see him as a troublemaker, These Pharisees, these religious leaders, these religious elite, they're seeing what's happening. They're seeing all the people that are coming. So John's disciples, remember last week, John's disciples, who probably came to him with a little bit of jealousy in their hearts because they're saying, you know what, everybody's coming to him and they're not coming to you. And John responds with humility, right? You remember this? He responds with humility. He says, look, no one has anything unless it is first given to him from heaven. And then he says, he must increase, I must decrease. So there's a lot of humility that John starts to display, which we argued would be one of the stronger characteristics of a believer. There should be humility in your life. Your life should be marked by that. And so now you have more jealousy on display in these Pharisees, and things are starting to stir. There's trouble. And if, although the text doesn't say this specifically, if we look at what's going to happen throughout the book of John, they're going to try to put a stop to it. I want to argue that they're going to, they would have tried to put a stop to Jesus because they try to put a stop to Jesus over and over and over again throughout the book of John until, until his hour came. So I think there's a stirring that's happening. I think they're coming to put a stop to Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, we're going to leave Judea and we're going to go to Galilee. But this isn't because that Jesus was afraid. It wasn't because, oh, no, they're going to kill me. Oh, no, this is going to be something horrible. In a sense, it was because maybe they were looking to, to stop his ministry. Maybe they were looking at that point to kill him. It wasn't that he was afraid of those things happening. But according to the will of God, Jesus had an appointment. Jesus had something that God had decreed to take place. And it was going to be seen 
through to fruition. And one of the means by which God used to keep Jesus safe was Jesus moving away from these dangerous situations. Could God have stopped the sword from coming down on, on, on anyone? Absolutely. But in this case, the way that God sovereignly moved, the way that God was protecting Jesus and his ministry and for him to fulfill what God had called him to do was Jesus moving from Judea. John's going to continue the ministry up until he dies. And Jesus is going to move so that the gospel can continue to be spread. So he doesn't leave out of fear. He leaves because that is the will of God. He leaves because his hour had not yet come. And that's going to be one of the dominating themes throughout the book of John. Or at least it's a reoccurring idea or reoccurring concept or events that take place throughout the book of John. So there's a few things that if I'm going to give you points to this, if you're taking notes, this is the first thing that I really want you to understand or to see is that human activity is never independent of divine providence or sovereignty. Human activity is never independent of divine providence or sovereignty. In other words, there's nothing that you do. There's nothing that you choose to do. There's nothing that happens unto you that is outside of the realm of providence and sovereignty. That is outside of God's acting, of God's moving, of God's intentions, of God's decree. None of these things happen outside of God. Evil, bad things, not that God is the culprit, not that God is wicked, not that God is wrong. There is no darkness in him. But these things happen under the blanket of his sovereignty. And that is good news for you because it means that he is still over bad things. If he's not, we've got a problem. If he's not over that, we have a God and we serve a God that can't control him, that can't do anything about these things. So no human activity is ever independent of divine providence and the sovereignty of God. And that's what's happening here. This is why he's moving. God is moving his son. God is moving essentially the gospel to Galilee. But before he moves it to Galilee, he moves it through Samaria, which is interesting. So it says this, because there's something that we can't just overlook here. There's a little bit of a hiccup in the text. First of all, we understand Jesus is not afraid. He's not scared of something. It's not that, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of, of, of confrontation. I'm afraid that they're going to come and, and get on to me or slap me on the hand, or at worst, they're going to kill me. No, Jesus is not afraid of these things. He knew the reason that he came, and he knew what he was there to do. And so he wasn't afraid of that. But he left, and it says this, it says that, okay, so he began, he left Judea, and he departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, don't think Samaria right now. Think of the term he had to. This is a strong statement to just overlook. It's a little bit of a hiccup because when I'm reading the Bible and what I'm understanding through my theological lenses is that God doesn't have to do anything. He's God. Who comes to God and says, you must do this, you must do that, you have to do this? So we don't look at this and think, okay, he really had no choice in the sense that he was cornered or that something dictated his actions. That some other force outside of God said, oh, you've got to do this. Or that he subjected himself to some man. He subjected himself to the will of the Pharisees in maybe trying to come and get him or run him out of the place. God didn't do that. He doesn't subject himself to those. He's a, he subjects himself to the will of the Father. This is exactly as a reminder to you what's happening when he looks at his mother and says, Woman, woman, what does this have to do with me, the wine running out? What does this have to do with me, for my hour has not yet come? He's telling her, I don't submit myself to your will. 
I submit myself to the will of the Father. I submit myself to the one who has sent me. And this is what's taking place. He's submitting himself to the will of God, and it was the will of God that has moved him. Think of it in this way. If I say to you, if you want to make a strawberry pie, you have to have strawberries. If I want to say to you, if you want to get from point A to point B, you must move. Either you sit in a vehicle that moves you, either way there's movement. There's an absolute statement there. I'm saying, listen, you've got to be on the move. Something has to happen. I'm creating this scenario. I'm I'm explaining this scenario in absolutes, and you understand this. Something has to happen here in order for this to happen here. This is the way these things work. And so... It's, 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 it's interesting because when you look at this text, I've looked at this text in 28 different translations, by the way, just, just out of curiosity to see what is meant by he had to do something. And you know what I found? That every one of them, all 28, with slight variations, connote the same idea. He had to, or it was necessary for him, or he needed to pass through. Even the message commentary, even the message commentary by Eugene Peterson, which is not a Bible at all, even that one gets this right, which tells me this is not a hard thing to interpret. This is not a difficult passage here to interpret. We must understand that Jesus had to do these things just like he had to die in order that we might live. So there's a necessity that takes place in order that we might live. And there's a necessity that takes place here in order to fulfill the will of God. And this necessity was that he go through Samaria. Was it because there was no other way? No, there were multiple ways to get to Samaria from Judea. Now, it was the straightest shot to go through through Samaria to get to Galilee. It was the straightest shot. But normally Jews didn't go that way. Normally they went over to the left over through the plains of Sharon along the coastal region, or they went over to the right towards Decapolis. They went this way. They would go out of their way to get to Galilee. This was a regularly traveled route. But it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Listen to the text here. He had to pass through Samaria, so he came to the town of Samaria, or to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Now, Sychar, just FYI, if, Samaria, if you're looking at a map and you see Samaria, just very slightly to where you would see the word Samaria, Sychar is positioned just barely south, southeast of Samaria. So it's right there. It's, it's in there. And so it says that he went to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about this, but you should just know that John is kind of just throwing some little nuggets of truth in there for you regarding the humanity of Jesus. He's argued the deity of Jesus. He said this over and over and over again. He's made it very plain for us to see in John's chapters 1, 2, and 3. But now Jesus is showing the human- John is showing the humanity of Christ when he says, look, he's weary from traveled. If God in spirit, not God the man, not God the Son of God, if it was just God the Father traveling from point A to point B, he has no need of anything. There's no human flesh. There's no humanity. So he didn't have any need. But John is saying, look, this is the humanity of Christ. He has a need. And it's simple to see. It's easy to understand. But it's still very, very important because John, at the end of all things, is building up this Christology. Because if you take the whole package at one time and you just plug in all these little moments where he's showing you something, you end up with a great, 
great argument. You end up with copious amounts of information regarding the deity and the humanity of Jesus. And said he had to pass through there. He had to go through Samaria. He went through Samaria because that was the will of the Father. It's like me saying that, well, I'll say this, the ultimate will of the Father, the ultimate will of the Father cannot be ignored. This is why it's saying he had to. Let me explain that for just a second. Because you might say, well, God has made it clear, he's revealed in his will that we shouldn't sin, but we sin all the time. Right? So how in the world can we, how in the world can, can I mean, I'm, I'm resisting his will all the time. In Romans 9, Paul makes this argument, and he gives a preemptive strike. He gives a preemptive rebuttal to his accusers, to the doubters, and he says, listen, who is it that, how is it that the, who is the potter to say to the clay, or who is the clay to say to the potter, why are you for me this way? He makes this big argument that's kind of hard to digest, and then he says, by the way, Romans 9, 19, who can resist his will? And it's a rhetorical question, because the answer is no one. Now, there's a hidden will of God. There's a secret will of God. There's a will of God that, that He decrees things and that we don't see, that we don't know. And that's the will that says, all things come to pass under my sovereign hand. And then there's a revealed will of God. There's the things that God has said, here's what I'm saying to you for all to hear. Here it is in the Bible. And sometimes we obey and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we respond rightly to those things and sometimes we don't. So in a sense, we can resist the revealed will of God. But at the end of the day, what God has sovereignly decreed, the Bible is very clear that no one can resist His will. Over and over again through the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's showing that what God decrees, it does. He does all that he pleases, so on and so forth. So he had to go because it was the will of God the Father. This, this language here is quintessential sovereignty of God language. Was nobody in here refutes uh, the sovereignty of God. It was not chance. It was not happenstance that he would go here. Get that out of your brain. If you're anyone that thinks, well, these things happen by coincidence, these things happen by chance, that is a fallacious argument. Even someone who's an atheist can't really stand under the scrutiny of an argument saying that all these things happen by chance or these things that happen by chance. There's factors. There's cause and effect in everything. You flip a coin. It has to do with physics. It lands where it lands because of the force behind the flip and because of all these other variables. It's not just chance that these things happened. So it wasn't by chance that God ends up, or that Jesus ends up in Samaria, that he ends up talking to this woman who comes at the sixth hour of the day. Jesus doesn't operate on hunches. Did Jesus say to himself, well, I got this feeling, I got this feeling that there just might be this promiscuous woman that will show up at this well, and I might just have this opportunity to tell her what living water is all about. It wasn't that. Now, I don't know what Jesus knew, but I knew, I know that God the Father said, this is my will for you, and Jesus goes, and he does exactly what the will of God would have had him to do. Whether God said that out loud to Jesus or not, I don't know, but I believe it was because it was the will of God. You know who this woman was? When he encounters this woman, do you know who she is? You know what she represents biblically? She represents those appointed to salvation. Acts chapter 13, 47 through 48 says, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And listen to this. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, they believed. They were appointed to eternal life. 
they believed. This woman represents the appointed. It wasn't, I'm going to go here and have this conversation, and hopefully things will go my way. God had appointed this woman for belief, just like he appointed those who were believing on the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 13. This, woman was, this woman's appointed time had come. The Bible says that this was in a place where Jacob's well was, just a little history of that. So you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name was also Israel. Israel had all the sons. Israel gave Joseph the coat of many colors. He was sold into slavery in Egypt. Joseph became a head over the providence of Egypt and all these things. Remember this story. So Jacob, the father of Joseph, the father of Reuben, the father of Benjamin, the father of all these guys that we see toward the tail end of the book of Genesis, Jacob bought a burial plot there, and that's recorded in Genesis 33, 19 through 20. And on that burial plot, he also dug a well. This is what the woman is referencing. This is what the scripture is referencing when it says Jacob's well was there. So we move to verse 6. And it says Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour of the day. The sixth hour is a kind of an interesting reference. There is some debate. I just want you to know. And I'll tell you where I side with this. But there are those that would say, well, it depends on which numerical system that you're considering. Because one says it was 6 p.m., the other says that it was uh, 12, that it was uh, 12 p.m., that it was that it was noon. Most scholars agree that it was 12. I'm going to go with that because the rest of the text kind of, I think, uh, implies that. I think it kind of makes it clear to consider that this hour was noon. You see, there was usually two parts in a day where a where a woman, and it was typically the women, that a woman would come to a well. There were a number of wells there. There were springs there in Sychar and Samaria. But this particular well, just as any other well, there were times that women would come usually in the morning and usually in the evening. And they would draw water from these wells. And these wells to serve the purpose of bathing, to serve the purpose of cooking, and for drinking water. And so they would come, usually twice a day, at least once a day, depending on the size of the bucket, depending on how much water they could haul back to their house. This woman presumably hiked about 10 minutes, so it wasn't this long, arduous journey where she had to walk through dry, arid region and basically dehydrate herself just to get that. That's not what's happening. Basically, if it's, if it's Samaria, if it's Sychar, it might have been a 10-minute walk for her, and she did this every day according to custom, according to culture. And Jesus shows up at the sixth hour, And it is an interesting time for him to show up because if it's noon, that's not a time that people would come to the well. They wouldn't show up at that time. So it begs the question, why is this woman here if she came at noon? Why would she do that? Why come at a weird time? Why not come when everybody else comes? Why walk through the heat of the day when everybody else is most likely having a bit of a siesta? Why do that? Why come at that time of day? And why would Jesus be there at that time of day when it wasn't the normal time for someone to come and draw water. It's because this woman was most likely an outcast. Perhaps her reputation of promiscuity, which was made evident through the rest of the text that Austin already read about her, about her multiple husbands, about her promiscuous life. Maybe it was easier for her to go at a time where no one could scorn her, no one could mock her, no one could look down at her. I don't know, most of you were not born, some of you were born, but we can all look back at history and see that it wasn't so long ago before this major cultural shift where if a woman, or a man for that matter, but specifically if a woman were divorced, she kept it hidden, she kept it secret. 
because she would become the dreg of society. She would be scorned because she was a divorced woman. How dare you be a divorcee? Why couldn't you, why couldn't you keep your man? Why couldn't you take care of your man? What would you do to make him not want to be with you? This was not too long ago. This is just mere decades ago. This is a very modest culture, and we're talking a few thousand years ago. Very, very modest culture. I'm not saying a Christian culture. I'm just saying a very modest culture. So for this woman to have had not one, not two, not three, not four, but five, and she's with another man now, according to the Scriptures, this was a major, major issue. This was very, very, very shameful. So it would make sense to me that she would come at noon, not at 6 p.m. where the other women were there, but she would come at noon when no one was there, Because would you want to be around people if all you ever got was scorn, mockery, shame? If people look down on you, would you want to be around people like that? No, you wouldn't want to be around people like that. No more than she would. And Jesus said something to her. It just, it it goes from interesting to really interesting. Just this, this whole thing. She comes out there, says this woman comes to the well. It's the sixth hour of the day. She's minding her business. She's, I don't know if she draws water and then Jesus speaks or if Jesus speaks before. That doesn't matter. But what matters is that Jesus speaks to her. Jesus, by the way, being a Jew, being a Jew, he speaks to the Samaritan woman. It's just the two of them, presumably, and Jesus is waiting there. She arrives on the scene and Jesus speaks to her. And this is absolutely unprecedented. He asks her for something. So it's not just that he speaks to this woman. But he asks her for something. He expresses a need. He wants this woman to meet a need of his. He wants her to give him water because he's thirsty. And this is unprecedented. A Jew asking a Samaritan for a drink? Are you kidding me? The Samaritan woman said to him, she responded to this question. She said, how is it that you, a Jew, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Scripture says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, let me explain that parenthetical statement. Jews having no dealings with Samaritans is, can be grossly misunderstood. And I'm not a- a- alone in what I'm about to say. This is the majority view here. The actual translation means to use together. When it says no dealings with, that word actually means in use or to use together. When she says, or when the Bible says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, it didn't mean that they didn't interact. Jesus, remember when Austin read, Jesus tells his disciples to go get food. Where do you think they're getting food? From Samaria. They're not going to go back down to Judea. They're not going to shoot up over to Galilee. They're not going to go east to Decapolis or go to the plains of Sharon to get food. They're not going to do that. They're going to go where it's local, where it's, where it's uh, more accommodating, where it's easier. So they go to Samaria. So there was buying and selling, trading. There were things like that that happens amongst the Jews and amongst Samarians. But the fact that it says no Jews have dealings with Samaritans is indicative or it's telling of a broken relationship between the two. And that's why she's asking this question, why are you a Jew talking to me? Because to the Jew, a Samaritan was a half-breed, was a dreg of society, was reprehensible. And to be a recipient of ultimate shame. This woman was amongst outcasts. But she was an outcast amongst the outcasts. 
That's why I say she was probably considered one of the lowliest of the dregs of society. So why is this relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans so bad? I mean, we've read this text probably a thousand times, and maybe you never knew. Maybe you never investigated it, but let me give you a brief history just so you can understand. There was a split around 930 B.C. of Israel into two into two nations, into two kingdoms, sorry, into two kingdoms. You got the northern kingdom, Israel. You got the southern kingdom, which is Judah. After the separation of Judah and Israel in the ninth century, King Omri of the northern kingdom, brought the, he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemar. And this is recorded in 1 Kings. He built there the city of Samaria, which became his capital. So Samaria is the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. In 722 B.C., Samaria was attacked by Assyria. I don't know if you remember in the book of Isaiah, God comes to Assyria and says, I want you to attack Israel. And then he judges them for doing it. Now, that's a fun thing to talk about. But this is what happens. So under the leadership of Argon II, Assyria attacks Israel attacks the northern kingdom, takes them into captivity, takes them into exile. Not all of them. There were a few left, some farmers and some others, some children, some women. But there was some left, enough to continue having a civilization, enough to continue populating and to grow into a city, a stronger city. While the Jews or while the northern kingdom, the rest were taken over into exile. During this time, what happened is you had some pagans that came into the land and began to intermarry with those who were the natives of the northern kingdom, Israel. So you have Jews that were intermarrying, which was a big no-no. They're intermarrying with these pagans. So you get this syncretistic hodgepodge of religion and all this other stuff. And then one day when the Jews who were taken from the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom were taken into exile, taken into captivity. They were let go. When they were released, what happens? They come back to find everything a mess, and they were absolutely disgusted. They couldn't believe what they had seen, that you had intermarried with foreigners, that you allowed foreign pagan gods into our home, and so they hated each other. This is why this woman says, you are a Jew, and you're talking to me. Jesus not only speaks to this woman, he asks her for something. Any other Jew would have found this action to be absolutely reprehensible. I told you the Samaritans were considered half-breeds. They were the dregs of society as far as the Jews were concerned. And yet, are we surprised that Jesus' ministry took him providentially to the least of these I mean, she's shocked, but should we be shocked? Jesus goes right to the heart of no man's land, right to the heart of where no one thought he would go. And he goes there. And maybe we can start seeing the writing on the wall that Jesus rescues the least of these, that he brings us from the guttermost and makes us the uttermost. The story is a picture of every one of us, every single one of us, born into sin, born into an inherited guilt, born estranged from God. We are the outcast. We were the dregs of society. Our lives were littered with immorality of every kind. This is Ephesians 2. This is what Ephesians 2 explains to you and me regarding who we are apart from Christ or who we were apart from Christ. We kept and some keep drawing the wrong water from the wrong well, seeking a satisfaction that will never happen, that will never occur. And what a horrible feeling to be hungry and thirsty, but to never have that hunger or that thirst satisfied and to never have it quenched. 
As I'm running with my son the other day, he wanted to go on a run with me. So we ran three miles, and he did every bit of it. Awesome. So naturally, what do I do? I take time to preach to him. I kind of hashed through my whole sermon. But it was only a 30-minute run, so, you know, it did pretty good. So we hashed through that, and I started asking him these questions. And I'm like, son, are you thirsty? Yeah. <laughs> we're just running. We're, we're, we're struggling out there. It's hot. I'm like, could you imagine never having your thirst quenched, buddy? Could you imagine just never being able to take a sip of water? I said, what happens when you do have your thirst quenched, son, with water? And you go back out to play. He said, I get thirsty again, Daddy. I said, absolutely. And so, Jesus, this story is like, you, until you find Jesus, you're going to go back to the same well. You're going to go back to other wells looking for water that will never satisfy you. And you get this water, and it's not going to do the job. So you're going to go back to some other well and get water, and it's not going to satisfy you. And that's going to be the process that you go through. And Christians do it too. We find or look for things that aren't meant to satisfy, to satisfy us. What a horrible feeling. There's a, there's a syndrome, there's a genetic disorder called Prater-Willi, Prater Prater I think, Prater-Willi syndrome. And it's this idea or this one of, the, one of the, uh, the symptoms is someone who is always hungry but could never be satisfied. I mean, it's a legitimate genetic disorder. And I thought to myself, how awful would that be? But this is the state of the non-believer. And this is the state of the believer who doesn't go to the fountain of living water. This is the state of the believer who's looking for all these other things to satisfy them. It's like you are designed for a thirst. You're designed with a hunger, but with only one option for satisfaction. And that's Jesus. So again, the woman comes to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you, given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, he said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him, I will or will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. I'm going to address the rest of this text after this in a few weeks. Because this woman has not yet come to a saving knowledge of Jesus yet. But she's still a natural mind thinking on natural things saying, okay, well, give me this. Just like Nicodemus, I must be born again. How can I crawl into my mother's womb a second time? Natural mind on natural things. Jesus is giving her truth. Jesus is telling her where she can find this living water. He says, because when you find it, you'll never have need for any other search. You'll never need to go anywhere else to get anything because what I'm going to give you will continuously replenish you. It will be a spring inside of you filling up. You will have a thirst for me. You will have a hunger for me. And you will find a very, very, very specific and intentional satisfaction that only I can supply you with through this well that's going to be welling up inside of you, this well of living water. So the question is, how does this story and its implications inform our stories today? How do these things work? 
Well, first of all, the story communicates to us that no other amount of water from any other well can satisfy our thirsts like Christ. I think that's obvious. I think that's right there jumping off of the page. If you've missed that, something's going on. You know, something's going on. That's, that's, that's right there. I'm sure you get tired of being thirsty. And Jesus is telling this woman, just as the message is the same for us, that we will never need to draw from any other source if we draw from him as the fountain of living water. Look no further. Look no further. You don't have to go anywhere else to find anything that will satisfy you or be sufficient for you because it's not there. You're not wired or designed to be satisfied by your job. You're not wired or designed to be ultimately satisfied by your marriage. You're not wired or designed to be satisfied in your motherhood or in your fatherhood. You're not designed for that. You're not made for that. The world is not made to satisfy you. All the common graces that God has given us, all the, all the trees, the swimming pools, the water parks, the good relationships, the tasty desserts, these things aren't meant to satisfy you. They're not meant to fulfill you. But we don't live like we know that. We say that we know that, but we don't live like that. Why? Because we go back to the wrong well and we, use, we drink from the wrong water all the time. And there's a definition for that and it's called insanity. There's a, there's, a, there's a term for that. It's called insanity. The story provides for us a mirror, okay, so that we can see ourselves and how Jesus came to satisfy our deepest needs. This is what the story provides for us. So if you're approaching this text, it should serve as a mirror for you to say, okay, am I someone that's looking to Jesus for satisfaction, for joy, for fulfillment? Am I doing these things? It proves to us that Jesus sought us out and is still seeking us out. And he's seeking out those who are currently living unsatisfied lives because they keep going to the wrong well. They live in denial. Maybe you do sometimes, or at least you know people that live in this denial, hoping that each time will will yield different results than the time before. For some of us, the well we keep going back to is the the successful execution of our daily plans. Some of you are planners. Some of you carry your calendar with you, and you say, you know what? You know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to accomplish this. And if you don't check off all your boxes in a day, your day's ruined. I know people like that, right? I'm not one like that. I'm kind of the other. I'm like, well, whatever happens, which is not always great. But there are people that are so planned and so detailed, and one moment that doesn't happen the way they want it to, it throws their day off kilter. Are you laughing because that's you, Austin Jowers? That is the wrong well. Because what does it say about my heart? What does it say about your heart if these things rob us of our joy? For some of us, the well is poorly selected relationships. The Bible says that he who's fool, he whose companions are fools will suffer harm. So let's say the biblical definition of a fool, not a subjective understanding or whatever. Let's say someone who's truly serving as an enemy of God. You know, I'm not talking your friends with somebody that's just sometimes dumb, right? Because we're all that, right? This is something deeper, something bigger. So, but sometimes we choose friendships wrongly. We poorly select these relationships and we want these friendships, these relationships to sustain us. And I'll give you examples. Growing up, I knew many, and I don't know why it seems to be females that do this more, but follow me. It seems to be that what I've seen, especially young ladies, pursue or 
entangle themselves or select for themselves young men that are just no good for them at all. They're no good for them. And when they see it, they don't say, let me break away from this. Let me do something else. They say, well, I'm going to change him. He's going to be my project. He's going to be my mission. Chances are I was somebody's mission at one point in time. Chances are I'm my wife's mission. <laughs> Too late, babe. <laughs> you know, if you leave me, I'm just following you. So, so here's our problem. And what happens is these young ladies, they buy into this idea, if the shoe fits, wear it. If not, you know, don't. As they look for this thing to satisfy them. It's like, if he could just change, if he could just do this, if he would just become this, I would be satisfied. And that's a lie because in the end of the day, it won't satisfy you. It's not going to. You know why? Because a relationship, good or bad, is not meant to satisfy you other than a relationship with Jesus. Some of us, our well is... A knowledge of God versus a relationship with God. Let me explain what I mean by that. Be careful. Be careful that you don't become pharisaical in your pursuit of God. Be careful that you don't become known as someone who is so much here, so much about getting the arguments right, so much about being smarter than your competition than you are about loving those who hate you, and you're about loving those who are broken, loving those who are in need. Be very careful with that. I know this. As a highly educated seminarian, I know this, okay? I get it. I get going there. I get the pursuit of these things, and those things taking place of a vibrant, lasting, meaningful relationship with Jesus, where you come as a child, and you're not sitting here trying to say, well, I'm going to figure out all these difficult theological conundrums so that I can answer every naysayer in the book. Somebody has a question about Calvinism. Boom, I've got one in the chamber ready to answer that. I used to live for that kind of stuff. But if you're not careful, if you're not careful, that can be the wrong well providing the wrong water. And I say that very carefully because there's nothing wrong with growing in your knowledge of God. But if you show me someone that shows no love for people, which is one of the greatest commandments, but they have a love for knowledge that puffs up, then I'll show you someone that may or may not be in Christ. And I'll definitely show you someone that needs to repent. For some of us, our will is the emptiness of behavioral modification. When you behave or when your behavior as a Christian is driven by duty, Rather than delight, and again, I want to say that very carefully because we do have a duty. I understand that. But when your behavior is driven by duty as though Christianity is behavioral modification, then you're most likely someone that's finding dissatisfaction after dissatisfaction. Jesus no more went through Samaria for its convenience than he endured becoming flesh and then going to his death for its convenience. Let me turn this corner so we're coming to an end here. It wasn't convenient for Jesus to save you. It wasn't. Taking on flesh was not convenient for Jesus. Emptying himself was not convenient, not of his deity, but of the exercise of his divine attributes. Being despised and rejected was not convenient for Jesus. And I need you to note something with this in mind. Let's be careful that our shortcomings as sojourners and missionaries aren't rooted or due to the fact that our mission 
or lack thereof is because of inconvenience. In other words, let me explain. We want to be very careful that the explanation or the rationale or the reason behind our lack of mission intentionality, if you're guilty of that, if I'm guilty of that, we want to make sure that the explanation of that is not, oh, it's inconvenient. Because the cross wasn't convenient, right? All these things were not convenient. So a call to mission is often a call to the inconvenient. I think this text shows us that Christ saves us from the guttermost to the uttermost. I think that is just the bold font written on the wall. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Mel Trotter. I want to close with this story of Mel Trotter, which really, I think, ties this up in a nice bow. Mel Trotter was born to an alcoholic bartending father in 1870. He became an alcoholic and a gambling addict by the age of 19. His addictions led him to steal from family, to sell possessions, to do things like that, which often happens with addicts, also that he could feed his addiction. Because of his addictions, he was not able to pay for the much-needed medical attention for his two-year-old son. Whatever ailment ailed his son, he was not able to take care of that. Probably an ailment that could have been taken care of if they had saved some money and bought the proper medications or got him the proper medical treatment. But instead of doing that, he squandered, like the prodigal son, he squandered his wealth. He squandered his money drinking from the wrong well. He vowed to his wife. Well, he uh, he uh, came home one day after a 10-day drinking binge, and his son that was very sick had died during those 10 days that he was on this drinking binge. And imagine coming home to something like that. Imagine coming home and you've been on a bender. You know your son's been sick. I don't know if he wrestled with any kind of guilt or not. I know non-Christians can wrestle with guilt. He comes home, 10-day bender, Wife is mourning. Why are you in grief? Why are you mourning? Two-year-old son had just died. It all comes crashing down on Mel Trotter at that point. That he, something could have been done. He's blown all of his money. He's blown all these things. Just like the prodigal son squandered his wealth on loose or wild living. Trotter did the same thing. Blowing it on gambling. Blowing it on alcohol and feeding his addictions. Drawing from that wrong well over and over again, drinking and drinking and drinking that wrong water, hoping that would have satisfied him, leaving him empty every time. He comes home to a dead son, and then he promises his wife right then and there, I will never touch the bottle again. It took him two hours, two hours before he went back out and got stoned. Two hours. Son hasn't been dead long at all, and he goes out on another bender. So he goes out, he gets drunk, probably the only way he knows to deal with it. He's wanting satisfaction, right? He's wanting something to appease him, something to, 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 to take away the, the pain and the emptiness and all that he's feeling. So he goes to what he knows. He goes to his vices. He goes to the wrong well. He goes to his addictions. And on his way, he decides, you know what? I don't deserve to live, which is absolutely true. Neither do you, neither, neither do I. We decided he's going to kill himself. And it was January the 19th of 1897, he decided that he would throw himself into Lake Michigan. This is January. So it was surely a suicide mission that he was on. You're not going to survive that. Because he had no intentions of hopping in and then hopping out by a nice warm fire. So Mel Trotter, on his way to fling himself into this frozen lake, 
he ends up passing by what's known as the Pacific Garden Mission House. It's on the way to the bridge that he was going to jump off of or whatever he was going to jump off of. But the other way, he passes this place, and this man comes outside, sees Mel Trotter, a man named Harry Monroe. He comes out and sees that this guy, Trotter, is in a bad way. So he says, I'm going I'm to approach this guy. I'm going to have a confrontation with this guy. And I just can't help but think in my mind, what would I do in that situation? I see someone who's in a bad way. Am I going to say, I'm just not going to be confrontational. I'm just not going to deal with this. Or I'm going to say, you know, odds are they need help of some sort. Odds are they need Jesus. Odds are they're going to the wrong well over and over again. Odds are they need the fountain of living water. So maybe I should say something. I'm thankful that Harry Monroe decided that he would do something on that day. He goes out and he talks to Mel Trotter and he says, what's going on? Mel Trotter began to tell him about all the things that had happened. And then Harry Monroe begins to say, listen, I was an alcoholic. I was in the guttermost. And then God rescued me and brought me to the uttermost. He says, man, there's nothing that you can't be forgiven of. There's nothing that God can't bring you out of. A very simplistic, non-super theological response. And Mel says, I need Jesus. He says, that's what I need. And one might say, well, maybe he just said that to absolve him of the guilt from what had happened to his son. Because you better believe he bore a lot of guilt. Well, I think the litmus test is time. I think one could say, well, that could be kind of a knee-jerk reaction. He's grasping for straws. He's like, whatever. I'll, I'll take anything because the bottle doesn't work. The marriage didn't do it for me. You know, something. Forty years after that encounter, Mel Trotter worked and started 68 mission homes gospel-centered mission homes that reached out to the alcoholics and the homeless, bringing them out of their vices by showing them who the fountain of living water is, impacting an innumerable amount of people over the years. So was it happenstance that Mel Trotter walked past the Pacific Garden Mission House? Was it happenstance that Harry Monroe saw Mel on his way to commit suicide by jumping into Lake Michigan? No, it was the will of God for Harry to intercept Mel. Just as it was for Jesus to intercept this Samaritan woman so that they could both find life in the fountain of living water. Just as it was not happenstance that when you were at your guttermost, no better, no worse than Mel Trotter, no better, no worse than a man that squandered his wealth that might could have taken care of a son that ended up dying because he had more love for his treasures than he had for his family and definitely more love than he had for God. You are no better and I am no better. And it is not by happenstance that God, at the appointed time, he came to your spiritual Samaria, if, I can, if you'll allow me that, when you were the dreg of society, when you were an outcast among outcasts, and he rescued you from the domain of darkness. And he brought you into the kingdom of his beloved son. I would say that you're ever, if you're ever witnessing to somebody and you might have all these verses you want to use, I would not hesitate for a moment to take them to John chapter 4 and say, this was me. And this might be you. And Jesus is offering something because everybody wants to be satisfied. But everybody drinks from the wrong, wrong well to begin with. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Father, I do believe that all things are providential and all things are, they happened 
as a byproduct of your sovereign hand. I don't know how everything works, but I do believe that. So, Father, my prayer is that this text would land appropriately. Lord, that whatever needs to take root in the hearts of the people in this room, that it would do that in my heart as well. Lord, I thank you for the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, I thank you for convicting me. I thank you for just the reminder, the reminder that I was estranged from the commonwealth of Israel, that I was dead in my trans- transgressions, that I was a, uh, the wrath of God remained on me, that I was an enemy of God, hostile towards God. I was all of these things. I had no desire for you. I had no interest in you. I had an interest in myself and my world and building my own kingdom. God, I do believe that you took the active role and that you pursued me and that you found me and you awakened faith in me and gave me eyes to see my need for Jesus. You gave me a new heart that could discern my need for Jesus. Lord, by your grace, you caused me to call on the Lord for salvation and you granted it to me. And I thank you for sanctification, and I thank you that you are working on me, and I thank you that you will one day complete me, although I am not completed yet. I thank you for your patience for myself and for my peers here. And I pray that as we leave this place, this word would resonate in our hearts. Lord, it would stir up necessary change in our lives that would be reflected in the way that we deal with one another and the way that we deal with the world around us, that it would embolden us, it would encourage us, it would humble us. Lord, that it would cause us to look more like Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.